I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I know I read this article. My sister just had a baby a year ago and um, there was this article. It says, as long as you can get one hour a day to yourself, the rest you can kind of deal with. And yeah. I know a couple of years ago, I was helping to take care of my grandfather. And if I, and I borrowed a neighbor's bike down in Boca, the thing was like, I don't know how it worked, but I so excited to get on this bike. I had like a spring up my ass and I would just have these big handlebars and an hour of just yeah. riding around. And it was the best. Good day, good people. My name is Brad King, and you are listening to the Downtown Riders Jam podcast, which is part of the Solid Listen Podcast Network. We are coming to you from deep inside the jam bunker on another gorgeous fall day in Pittsburgh. It's been like 60 degrees for the last month. Heat's not on, fire pits in the backyard. Uh, I also just got back from five days camping in the Blue Ridge Mountains down in North Carolina, just outside of Asheville. And if we have any listeners down that way, Asheville, I love you so much. It's gorgeous. It's so much fun. The Highland Brewery, uh, Highland Brewing Company, one of my favorite breweries in the country. Big outdoor field, dogs and shit everywhere. Food truck. You're just kind of out in the mountains having a, you know, a drink. I also stumbled into an Ohio State football alumni bar. Now, the only time I was not doing something outside was when I went to see the Ohio State Buckeyes uh, beat Michigan State. And it was lovely. There was like 80 people from Ohio there. So even though I live in Pittsburgh, that's where I'm from. It was nice. It's tough to come back. I love Pittsburgh. I love the mountains more. It's also Halloween. And I don't know what your house looks like, but I am a Halloween kid. Uh, so I literally got home from camping, cleaned all my shit. And immediately started pulling out all the boxes. And I have, uh, in like 48 hours, my house has exploded. 
And I will be putting up my one of my Halloween costumes on the Riders Jam Twitter account. Probably the Instagram account, too. So you can go check that out. It is literally my favorite time of year. I am excited to have Felice Cohen on the program. And her memoir, Half In, is out right now. One, she's delightful. I was not, you know, I don't do any research. I do very little research when I interview people. Because I don't want it to be a resume interview. You know that. If you listen to the show, you know that. If you don't listen to the show, I do no research. Everything you're going to be learning will be things that I'm learning for the first time. First 15 minutes of the interview, we talked about sports, but not like professional sports, but like the sports we played. Um, Felice is just this renaissance woman um, who's fascinating. And every topic had something to say and stories to tell. Fucking delightful. So here's what I learned, which some of you probably already knew because uh, you spend more time on the Internet than me. She became famous for living in a 90-square-foot apartment in New York and did this YouTube video uh, that has 25 million views. I had no idea. And that she turned that into a book, 90 Lessons for Living Large in 90 Square Feet or more. That is not we, – we talked a little bit about that. But that was, you know, like as I sort of came across it, I was like, holy shit, that's one of those things that I didn't know. And how the hell did I miss that? I feel like that was in between my wire time and like I'm not doing anything on the internet time. Uh, but we also talked a whole lot about her family and how she became a writer, obviously. Um, and one of the ways she did that was by writing this book called What Papa Told Me. So she's the grandkid of two Holocaust survivors. And you'll hear the story of how she wrote this book um, and how that sort of led her to become uh, not become a writer, but sort of, it was the sort of, it was one of those seminal moments that lasted for like 15 years, 20 years. And she's here today to talk about her memoir half in a coming of age, a coming of age memoir uh, of forbidden love. Um, and it's just, it's a delightful interview. That's going to touch on a lot of topics. And really when you come to the bunker, like if you listen to me at all, I think eclectic might be a way that you describe me and what we do here. And Felice is like eclectic times five. Delightful. Delightful. I hated hanging up the phone. Uh, she splits her time between New York City and Cape Cod. Today she's going to spend an hour with us here in the bunker. As you know, you can get subscribed to all of the shows that we do on this channel, right? So we do three different kinds of shows. Today, you're listening to The Jam. We do The After Party, which is a fun Q&A storytelling show. And when we have nonfiction books that we want to delve into a topic, we do jam sessions. Don't worry about any of that. Get subscribed right now. Click on the subscribe button wherever you are. I don't care if you're driving. Hands-free or not. Like, hit that. I do. Don't. If you're driving, don't do any of that. When you stop, hit the subscribe button. Uh, if you head over to our website, we've got all kind of stuff going on there, book reviews, things like that. You can also support the entire Solid Listen Network. We have like 12 shows. We may have more now. Malls and Nicole are cranking stuff out all the time. Uh, and if you support through Patreon, I think it's a dollar and five dollars a month. They may have put up a new tier as well. You get a, all the 
these shows commercial free. You get them before anybody else. Tons of bonus content. They're always doing stuff. So it's a really good way to support what I think is the nicest corner of the internet. Malls and Nicole do a really good job of cultivating fun, interesting, nice shows. But enough of all that. I'm very excited to have Felice in the bunker. I appreciate you taking some time to stop and listen. I know time is at a premium. Maybe because I'm getting older. It's more of a premium. So anytime people spend time with us, I'm always very appreciative of that. And I hope that you will sit back and enjoy my conversation with the absolutely fantastic Felice Cohen. I'm from Cape Cod. Oh, you're from I grew up, up there. Yeah, I grew up actually in this closet in this bedroom no um, shit so you're like yeah. literally in your childhood home literally um, wow. yeah How weird is that you know what it's it's not so weird anymore because i've been spending so many summers here now like the last six or seven summers maybe 10 summers um i come for three months and wow. um and then i was just here during the pandemic you know i get to go back to new york city and yeah and kind of you know it's crazy it's like oh i can relax in the city yeah um but it's uh, it's great to be here. I mean, I think during the especially during the pandemic, you know, I really appreciated every season uh-huh. that I really didn't get to as a as a child. As yeah. A kid. And you said you got uh, siblings. I have two younger sisters. Oh wow! Yeah. So you're the oldest. I am. One's so- twelve years younger than I am. So oh wow! So different. you're like sister mom, sister yeah. aunt. Yeah. And now she has a baby, and it's just it's amazing. And how old's the other one? Where's the other one at? She's between us. She's uh, four and a half years younger than I am. Oh, wow. So you guys were all. So I've described this before with my sister and I. We were five years apart. We always say we were uh, only children raised together because we were never in the same place, right? Never in the same school. Never. Did you guys have that dynamic a little bit? Yeah, because my my younger sister wasn't in the same school with me. Um, yeah, obviously. And then, yeah, <laughs> and then I well, the one in the middle, and then when I graduated UMass, I worked in orientation, and then she came in the next year, so um, I got to you know I was even in charge of orientation, so I got to kind wow. of see her come through and hook her up. And so what were and what your parents do? Uh, my dad was an attorney, uh-huh. and um, my mom was really active in a lot of. Uh, organizations on the Cape. And then the last like 15, 20 years of my dad's firm, she worked with him. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So um, what was it like growing up up there? I grew up in like a little small town in the middle of nowhere. So that sounds great. Yeah. Growing up on the Cape was great. I mean, it was beautiful. And, you know, it's it's, uh, people I remember I'd go to camp or meet other people and they'd say, were you the only ones on the Cape in the winter? And I'm thinking, no. Um, you know, my, I, my high school graduation class had like 408 kids, Holy shit. one high school on the Cape. Yeah. So there were a lot of people on the Cape. Yeah, like I graduated uh, with like 170. Wow. Yeah. That's small. Yeah. yeah. That's and small. we all knew each other from the time we were zero to right. today. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, and so it was, a, it was, a, you know, even though the Cape is a small place, um, you know, I, you know, I ventured out and then I went to UMass, which was big. Yeah. And uh, so what what were you like? What were you like as a kid? You're the oldest. So are you one of them rule followers? You don't seem like a rule follower. Yeah, no, I was. I think, you know, the oldest, you know, and kind of taking charge. Um, 
I was, I played. Well, no, bar- rule setter I could right. see. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I did have some parties, you know, the yeah. alcohol in my parents' basement that had like layers of dust on it. My friends would uh, yeah. in high school, but, you know, not much. I was a good kid. I was a varsity athlete. I was vice president of my class for three years. Oh, wow. Um, I loved my teachers. You know, I had a good group, different friends and different yeah. things that I did. But um, what did you play? Yeah. I softball? played volleyball, volleyball, softball, and so basketball. let me guess. Uh, I don't, I can't see you other than your head, but I'm guessing like, l- <laughs> what, left field, center field, center field. Yeah, I was wow. a baseball player. Yeah, yeah. Wow. <laughs> if you you haven't listened to the show, so you don't know, I have a long history in baseball, and I'm like, okay, let me. If I'd have had you stand up, I'm like, all right, uh, yeah, you're fast, so he's either like second base, left field, or center field. Like, yep, that was where you were. Oh, I loved it. Just were you fast? Snacking. You were fast. I was fast. You know, we have a huge backyard and I grew up with yeah. my dad just hitting me balls and hitting them short and be like, you got it, you got it, you got it. Yeah. And I would just run. And there was nothing I loved more than uh, running for fly balls. And yeah, I was Lefty? recruited uh, righty. Okay. I was recruited to play uh, division one wow. at UMass, softball and volleyball. And, that, uh, oh, both of them. Yeah, played for five minutes and quit. It was yeah. in Division One. Are you it's kidding for real. me? Yeah. No. Were you like a what do they call it? Yeah. A Libro? Libra? What Libra? Is that what what were you in volleyball? I was a setter. Okay. What's the one that gets to move around wherever? There's a name for that. Oh, oh, um utility. No, that's basically. Well, yeah, it starts uh, with yeah. an L. I so, thought it started with an L. Yeah. That was what I thought. Yeah. I know nothing about volleyball, it's, so I'm less good yeah. at that. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a while. Yeah, I uh, actually, when my career ended, I was the the student manager on the women's softball team at Miami University. Wow! And I've told my baseball guy, you know, I played against a bunch of dudes in the major leagues. The hardest thing I've ever done in my life. We had an all uh, conference pitcher, and I hopped in the cage, finally fouled the ball off after like you know fifteen <laughs> misses, and dropped that bat like I just won the World Series. Like, yeah. holy shit, this ball's doing things I've never seen a ball do. Wow. Yeah, th- those women are incredible. You almost just have to try to be ready with a bunt and hope it just connects. Yeah. yeah. And That's like amazing. rise balls, like that shit doesn't exist in baseball. Like this, this, yeah. this, the, the things that they were throwing, I'm like, I've never seen a ball do this. <laughs> yeah. And underhand, I pitched until my freshman year when I got clocked in the face with the yeah, line drive. Do it. And that, that, was, that was good. Yeah. I'm so it was like... Because I know for me, like our school was small, so you sort of did everything, right? Like, is that sort of your experience of you being in school? Because it sounded like you were involved in lots of stuff. Yeah, I just like to be involved in stuff. Like sports was fun. I I started playing baseball when I was seven. My dad gave me his father's glove, which was one of those flat, like almost like a catcher's glove. And I played center field with this glove. I mean, I just caught everything. And I think- That just probably made me better, but no padding, um, no padding. Yeah, no, it was all padding. Yeah. It was like just oh, a flat, all padding. Oh, just one of those you. flat Snoopy gloves or something. I, I mean, I think I have it framed in my apartment in New York, but awesome. I, I just loved playing. Uh, I went to Larry Bird's basketball camp as a kid. Um, no shit. I just wanted to meet him and we only got to see him for one day. I was like, this is BS, but um but he's I just, a busy man yeah. so yeah. like that's still pretty yeah. good <laughs> yeah i have a picture of me with him i come up to his waist it's yeah of just, course you did <laughs> he was amazing he was he was awesome but yeah. um it was fun i mean you know the centerpieces at my bat mitzvah had were basketballs <laughs> really it, it you know funny. i interviewed i was working on this book that i hope i get to finish someday called catch and i just went around and interviewed people about uh women and men about the 
first time they played catch with their parent, right? Oh, Most of it was great. their dad. So I interviewed all these professional softball players. And all of them said, you, it sounds like you had this experience. They said, the reason I'm a professional softball player is that my father never treated me like a girl, right? Like if, if I, if he'd hit the ball and if it hit me and I started to cry, he'd be like, do you want to be good? <laughs> and if they said yes, which they all did, he's like, you're going to get hit sometimes. Yeah. And they all said it was the best thing that ever happened to them because they got to be the best versions of themselves as athletes. Yeah. And it sounds like your dad kind of did the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, just, just in the backyard, just throwing and catching another one, another one. And my mom would be like dinner. We're like one more. Yeah. Yeah. It was fun. Yeah. It was great. <laughs> I used to shovel out the key in the, on our driveway with a basketball hoop yeah. so I could shoot in the winter. Yeah. Shoot and you know, you look back you it. on it and you're like a little bit crazy, but also like. That's what you do. It's fun. It is like, yeah, there. So it sounds like you, um, there is something about. And I don't want to say this is going to sound snobby, but like excellence comes from that stuff, right? Like doing mm -hmm. things that sort of seem a little crazy and just being like, well, if you want to be good at it, right? You know, right. other girls aren't shooting because it's snowy. So I'm going to be better than them. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I was just doing it because I loved it. Yeah. I wanted to get out and do it. And, you know, what's that thing? 10,000 hours to get good at something. Yeah. And um, I mean, you know, with this launch, my parents are like, are you sure you should be, you're so stressed. And I was like, it's good stress. I mean, yeah. my, I'm like, I run downstairs, grab something to eat. And I'm like, I'll see you. And I, yeah. and there's so much to do, but you have to push yourself because no one else is doing it. Yeah. There's no boss. There's no teacher. And there is, like you said, it's a good Nicholas Negroponte called it hard fun, right? Like there is yeah. a, it's just like we talked about, like I would take the days off so I can do stuff around the house. Like you know, 20 year old me is like, the fuck are you doing? And then like 50 year old me is like, oh, you hung the shelf and painted the wall. Like <laughs> that's done. Feels good. Yeah. I don't yeah. know why, but you're just like, <laughs> I have made things with my hands. You know? <laughs> well, there's always that sense of accomplishment. Yeah. In anything I do. I think I've always had that. You know, I sit down to a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle and I'm like, let's do it. Yeah. And um, it's fun. It's Do you have, cause it sounds like you were competitive. I'm just like, I'm, I'm going to take a wild stab yeah. at that one. Do, I can't play board games or games with people now. <laughs> Do you have that? So during the pandemic, <laughs> my mom and I would try to play this game, Rummy Q every night, one game. And I, I've always, my grandmother taught me how to play when I was like seven and I'm, I'm good. I beat a lot of people, but so we would keep track and, you know, I would be like winning 23 times to her six times. And then this last year I was trying to give her some tips. She's up like 13, eight. And I was like, wait, no, <laughs> so I had to put my phone down. I said, I really need to focus. Um, <laughs> I said, I'm, yeah. I'm proud of you, mom, but no. <laughs> yeah. My girlfriend doesn't understand. Like, you know, they'll be doing stuff because they have a big family. We got to the farm and I'm like, they play games and I'm like, I'm not. I'm not going to do it. And they're like, ah, come on. It's fun. And I'm like, I, I never played a game for fun. Fun to me is destroying your will to want to play this game. Right. Like yeah, that's right. Fun for only me. <laughs> yeah. I don't think yeah. I'm that intense, but I get it. Yeah. I want to win. Yeah. I'm like, I'll make food. I'll cheer everybody on. Like, let me just be part of the thing. Like I'm right. trying to protect you. <laughs> from the fact that at seven I was playing competitive t-ball <laughs> wow <laughs> yeah <laughs> so were you like along with all that other stuff were you like bookie and arty as well 
Yeah, I loved art. Um, there's actually this picture hanging. My mom asked me the other day. It's of Cosette from Les Mis. She's like, do you trace this? I said, no, I drew it like this big. I just love to do kind of art, making creative things. I used to make these like fun books uh, with me and my grandmother or me and my grandfather. And oh, that's fun. Stories. Yeah, of color paper and just doing projects and arts and crafts. You know, I, used I mean, you've got a lot of energy. I do. And yeah. I don't drink coffee, but I do. I, I just, I don't know. It's like, you know, I remember once somebody said to me, you know, life is short, but it's this wide. Yeah. And it's like, well, I want to do all these things. There's, and, and that's one of the reasons I'm a professional organizer as well. It's like, it's about how to make your time more efficient and how not yeah. to waste it. Yeah. I, I don't want to spend one minute looking for my car key. Um, yeah. yeah. So when you get to high school and when you're uh, like, you've got the sports, you got all the stuff and you're thinking of, cause I'm assuming college is on the docket. Yeah. Even if your parents weren't pushing you to, which I'm sure they were like just hearing you for these half hour. I'm like, Oh yeah, you were going to yeah. accomplish some things in life. <laughs> yeah. I think it was just assumed I would go to college and I never not thought I would. Did you have an idea of what you wanted? Like when you were thinking about college, like, were you like, all right, this is the path. Yeah. I just, always assumed I'd go to college. I thought I'd go to, you know, some Ivy school or some, you know, little small school somewhere. And then um, my dad was like, I want you to really consider UMass Amherst. And I thought, no way. It's big. It's huge. No way. And then my cousin who graduated from there took me to see it. And she just like, you could just walk into the dorms then. And it was like a Saturday. We knocked on somebody's door. Hey, I want to show my cousin your room. And then she just showed me the campus and everything. And I just, it had so much to offer. And I said, okay, I think I can go here. I'll love it. And I did love it. I mean, you know, the, the education was great. Absolutely. But it was outside the classroom. Yeah. I was a DJ on the radio. Yeah. I wrote a column for the newspaper. I yeah. was treasurer of my dorm. I worked. John Calipari was the new coach mm -hmm. at UMass. I worked in his office. Oh, that's um, cool. I, I was orientation counselor. I mean, that was just so much to do. You did in high school or you did in college, but you did in high school. Yeah. Yeah. Just at another level. So what were you thinking about studying? Like, did you have a did you have a pa that you're like, oh, yeah, this is. This is where I think I'm going. Um, I wasn't sure, but a teacher, I think one of my math teachers said, I think you, math is a great major. I was like, all right, I'll study math. Hated it. Yeah. Oh my God. I, the, we didn't even have X's and Y's anymore. It was like A's and B and I was so lost. And yeah. I spent a weekend reading the course catalog in my room <laughs> and they had a major at UMass called bachelor's degree with individual concentration. You oh, create yeah. your own major. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, whoa. You were at and the start of that movement, I think. Like it, that was at the beginning yeah. of like, maybe we should allow kids to craft their own way. Yeah. And I did public relations sports marketing. Mm -hmm. And I took classes at Amherst College because at UMass, they've got this five college consortium. I oh, took cool. colleges at um, uh, classes at Mount Holyoke. Uh -huh. um, and so you could take classes at Hampshire and Smith and it just kind of, Oh shit. Sudden, like those are, that's yeah. Okay. You got and a guys good education. Could take, yeah. yeah. When I used to run orientation, we'd be like, guys, you could take classes at Mount Holyoke and Smith. You'd be the only guy in your class. Like, dude, you know, but also um, like I, you know, I've interviewed, I mean, a couple of my best friends went to Smith, but like, also like, it's like, you're going to get a really good oh, education yeah. there. <laughs> oh yes. Well, all of them, Smith, Mount Holyoke, Amherst. Yeah. And you're not paying those prices. You're yeah. paying to go to UMass. Yeah. And um, it, it's just, 
it was no brainer. That's and, amazing. Um, and I loved it. And uh, we, yeah, I, was, I got, I got into a graduate school class where we put together a basketball tournament, a three on three tournament. And I'd always been big on, um, you know, doing events. Yeah. And uh, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. All right. We're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back and we're going to uh, get into the next part of your life. So we'll be back okay. in just a second. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores. And it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay. Uh, as always, you guys miss the parts of the conversation that I like most, and you will not hear any of that. So when last we left, you had gotten to Amherst, um, and you're doing, what was the program that you, it was an individually designed program, but it was aimed at what? What was your? Uh, public relations sports marketing. And what did you think you were going to do with that? You know, it's funny at the beginning, I think my mom asked me the same freaking thing. Uh, and I said, look, you turn on the TV and there's a basketball game, right? Celtics are playing. How many people does it take to put that game on? It's not yeah. just the 10 guys on the court. It's not just the coaches. It's the TV. It's the press. It's the venue is the advertising. I mean, there's a million things and, and that's, and the publicity and the PR. And that's what I was kind of thinking I might want to do. Yeah. And I had an internship with uh, Fox Five, it was new in Boston. It just started like the Simpsons were on a, you know, two oh, minutes a day. So you're back then you're at the, you're yeah. the married with children version of, yeah, it yeah. was like, you know, it was like early nineties. And, and then I didn't really love it. I had applied for jobs after college and, and didn't know if that's really what I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I worked on the basketball team for four years and I remember the players getting like meal money after a game. Cause I'd get meal money. Cause I would do water and towels at the game. And I thought, is this legal? Like, I think athletes should be paid, but the money should go into account that they get when they graduate. Yeah. There's so much money and everything. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but athletes, I mean, yeah, there's, yeah. I mean, I was an athlete too. And I was all, like, I, not in college. Like I got hurt, but like, you Ooh. see all that money coming in, right? You see coaches making money, you see Tons. them making shoe money. And you're like, uh, that dude just got $15 to eat and he's six foot five. <laughs> you know, like, that's not feeding anybody. No, no, <laughs> yeah. no. We got $7. Yeah. It was crazy. Yeah. Um, it was just a, that was an, 
it was an interesting sports yeah. time because it was literally that was sort of the precipice of this sort of superstar college age. Yeah. Right. When we're seeing all this stuff. So as you yeah. as you finish, what are you thinking? Like, well, that's that's <laughs> like what like, my whole book is about. It's like figure like, what are you going to do with your life? And um, as an undergraduate for two summers, I was a, a counselor with summer orientation. And then I found out this job at admissions, like it's given to one UMass grad. And it was pretty much just an assistant admissions person. And I would travel and recruit and then read applications. And I never thought of it as a job. I always wanted to be a writer. And this was just kind of what would pay the rent. So that was the thing. So you thought writing was what you were going to do? I Yeah, I really wanted to. I was an op-ed columnist on the Collegian. Every week I had a column and I thought, Oh, I'll just be a columnist. Like, right. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. We were at the end of the time when you're like, that's actually a job that pays money. <laughs> right. And, you know, it's not like today. I mean, you could just have your own blog or you could have something yeah. that could actually become something. But I knew I had to kind of figure it out. And, um, and then Did you I was, think as you wanted to be a writer and were going through school, like, were you positioning yourself in that way at all? Or was it just sort of like a, oh, this will just happen for me? Yeah, it'll just happen. Yeah. Like everything kind of just happened so easily at UMass. And um, I remember, you know, I wanted to be a columnist and, and I worked hard in my senior year. They called me up. You're a columnist. And I was so excited. Like um, I made it. Yeah. And I, I never really took writing classes. I never uh, thought I thought a little of graduate school, but then I thought I didn't want to be back in the classroom just yet. Yeah. And um, I figured I'd just write. I didn't know what I was doing. It's so interesting. And so when you graduate, you get, you, you take that job as a, in, in admissions. Yep. I worked and, there for a year. And what, as you were doing that, were you thinking like, how am I going to position myself as a writer? Or were you just sort of like, okay, I'm out of school. Let's just live for a little bit and then I'll figure some shit out. Yeah. I mean, I, I wrote these things called notes from the road and I would fax them back to the office for the fax machine. And I would, you know, crazy things that happen, like getting stuck on the side of the road or hotel stuff. And at the time I had just found out my grandfather, my mom's dad, more of his stories about being in the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. And in college, I had written an op-ed about my grandmother. She had committed suicide. She had survived Auschwitz and all this oh. stuff. And so my grandfather said, I want you to tell my story. So I was starting to work with my grandfather on his story. I never thought it would be a book. I just thought, okay, I'll write his story and I'll go to Kinko's and I'll make copies and, and that would be it. So, so you thought it was going to be like a family book. Yeah, that was it. I mean, I really, and that was what I kind of worked on. Um, that was kind of a focus and I figured I have these other jobs, but that will be kind of a writing focus. I didn't know where it would go, what it would yeah. do. So what did that look like? That's fascinating to me. Like, how did it, like, did you just go sit down with him and like have him tell stories and record it? Like, how'd you do it? Yeah. Well, I, when I'm in schools, it's funny. I, I've spoken so many places. I will, I would say when I first started working with him, I had a tape recorder. Yeah. A lot of you don't know what a tape recorder is. Yeah. And then when I ended, I had the phone and yeah. um, I would record Oh, wow. Things. So it, it went a few it was years. A it was a long year. Yeah. yeah. And my grandfather, his memory wasn't like, okay, sure. this happened. Then this happened. Yeah. It was like memory from here and the concentration camp and that camp. And, and it was really before Google too. So I couldn't get <laughs> all the details, like what he yeah. was saying and uh, some stories before the war. And, and I, thank God I was good at puzzles because I had to put it all yeah. together. Well, that's what writing is. Right. Nonfiction writing is a right. puzzle. Because nobody puzzle. thinks linearly. 
even in the yeah. best of times, you tell a story and like when you actually get a transcript, you're like, holy shit, you just it's yeah. like a tree. Shit goes everywhere. And you have to sort of pick which branch you want to find out about. Right. Right. Like so. Yeah. So much <laughs> like that. So I had that one little kind of project I was working on yeah. um, while I was figuring out all the rest of my life. Do you think that taught you how to be a writer? Like that's I mean, writing a book is a class in being a writer. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and the last couple of months has been a class on being a publisher as well. I mean, you learn by just doing it yeah. um, and, and writing my grandfather's book on and off for like 18 years. Yeah. And in, in Judaism, 18 is like good luck. So I remember when the book was finally done, I called him up. I'm standing on, I think it was like Broadway and 67th street or something. And I called my grandfather. I'm like, it's done. It's finally done. And I was crying and, um, and I really never expected to sell any copies. Yeah. I wrote it as a gift for my grandfather. Yeah. And then everywhere we went, my grandfather would say, my granddaughter's writing a book about me. And now, now, you know, during it, he started calling it a book and I was like, all right, now the pressure's uh -oh. on. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, so I thought, okay. But then I remember towards the end, I thought, how can I make it different from any other story? And that's yeah. why in between chapters, I put snippets of dialogue between us mm -hmm. as we were writing the book, just and it was it was really just a gift for him, but it, it ended up being a gift for me. Yeah. Um, well, and clearly for other people too, right? Absolutely, like, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, and particularly in today's fuckery. Yeah. Like you know, having those kinds of stories um, from people who came before us has be is becoming increasingly important with a country that seems hostile to stories that came before. Right. <laughs> or they want to change it or erase yeah. it. Yeah, I don't. I was trying to say it nicely. I yeah. normally don't say it nicely, but the fuckery <laughs> going on, it's like no, no, no. like these no. things. Right. You know, I've told the story, and it, it's it is analogous to the thing. But like one of my friends, his family's from Virginia, and he's he's a black man, and he's in the late seventies, early eighties. And when Barack Obama got elected, he and I were we talk every year during the election, and it was very moving for him because his grandmother had been it was either a sharecropper or a slave in Virginia, Jeez. and I tell people like this is. A, like I am friends with somebody who knows this stuff. Like it's not a, oh my, it's the past. Get over it. I'm like, that's his life, man. Um, and people forget Amazing. that time is long, but it's not. Right. Generations are short. You know, like in terms so of like the connections that you have, and like if you live to eighty, and your dad lives to eighty, and your grandfather lives to eighty, that's a fucking long time ago. You yeah. know. Do you, yeah. as you were writing it, did you have that sense of like being able to like have some, did it give you some connection to the past for you? Absolutely. You know, there were be moments when we'd sit together and I was like in journalist mode, I'd be asking yeah. questions. So you woke up next to a corpse, then what happened? Yeah. And it wasn't until <laughs> I got home and started like retyping this stuff up that I realized these were not like history facts. These yes. were experiences in my, in my grandfather had in my family's history. Yeah. And um, did you and begin to it, see your yeah. life? Did you begin to see their life differently? Like once you begin to internalize, yes. not the story, but the humanness of their story. Yeah. Like, how did he go on? Yeah. I, you can't even imagine like people would say you wouldn't but, last two minutes in Auschwitz. And it's like, yeah, how, how after five years in eight different camps, how do you go on with your life? And how do you be so positive and, and so happy and loving? And yeah. it's great. I mean, he died at 94 and I remember, the morning after I was there with my mom down in Florida and I was so mad. I saw this like 
um, Holocaust Museum bag. And I was like, what was the point of all of that? Like, why did this man and so many millions have to suffer like today? Yeah. What's going on? Like, why do people have to suffer? What is the point? Yeah. Because some jerk off is just needs power or something. It's yeah. just horrible. I was going up to do a talk once and the woman introduced me and then she turned to me and said, can you keep it light? And I was like, this is about the Holocaust. So I get up there. I don't, I'm like gobsmacked. I said, you know, I told, I said what this woman just said. I said, but you know, at the end of the day, this book is about hope. Yeah. Because it's just like that. You, it, there's hope that you can go on with your life. Yeah. And not just be, you know, and you know, my grandmother couldn't, she committed suicide. It was too traumatic. Sure. But, but for so many, they persevered. Yeah. They just had to go on and. And you get an empathy for the people that couldn't, right? Like for anybody that's ever been in a trauma, like not that it's not that you, not that you give it like, oh, it's great that they, you know, committed suicide or whatever. But like my uncle did, like, I, like mm-hmm. I understand, you know, like I don't like it and I wish there was a way out. And you always think like, could we have done something else? But also I'm like, man, the world is a fucking brutal place. Like just be nice to people around you. Right. You know, <laughs> like, so true. Yeah. Like, I don't get right. this world. Yeah. And so the fact that your grandfather like survived that and, and was able to tell his stories and talk about it. I mean, I hate to say it's a gift, but like, that's a gift to the world to be able to do that. Yeah. And well, he didn't talk about it for like 45, 50 years. And he probably and, only did it because it was you. Right. And yeah, that's the only reason. Because yeah. we, I mean, we were so close and I think grandchildren you know, when you're a parent, you're trying to protect your kids and just sure. grow up. But now I think there's that kind of buffer in between. And yeah. um, well, know, and then asks. it's the it, when you get near the end, I think that you want to make sure that the story, you know, if the song gets sung. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's how. I have my family history back to the 1500s, you know, wow. and like history, family history is important in my family. Yeah, and it sounds That's like amazing. it was for him as well. Like this, this needs to not be forgotten. I need to not, and the people that I knew need to not be forgotten. Right. Right. Yeah. I, you know, it was a couple of days before he died. He was like, weighed nothing. He wasn't really with it. And we had all these people around and my grandfather, we gave him the remote control, the hole in his hand. He didn't know what it was, but he, he raises both his arms and he's like, my granddaughter wrote a book and we all just like lost it. I was like, oh my, the last marketing push, you know, like he used to stop people everywhere. Do you have internet? You know, in his accent, uh, my, buy my book. That's amazing. Yeah, it was the great. Grandparents really are the best word of mouth. Really? Because they'll just talk to anybody about anything. I know. Uh, yeah, my grandma did that. Didn't know shit about what I did, but told everybody, you know, whatever. Like that was going on. So uh, you're out of college, and you're, we're not going to talk a whole lot about the book because I want people to read the book, so we sure. don't have to cover all of that kind of stuff. So at one point, at what point do you sort of like say, "All right, like you're working on this book for 18 years, like you also have the YouTube thing that sort of you know propels you into a certain place." Like when did it start to come together for you? in terms of what you thought life was going to be like? Um, are we still, are we still? <laughs> <laughs> How much time left do we have? Well, like I worked on my grandfather's story on and off, but when I graduated from college, I had that job for one year and then I wasn't sure what I was going to do. Yeah. And then I had this affair with this uh, much older woman and that kind of took precedence over everything. And, and it kind of derailed my 
like, what am I going to do with my life? Sure. And I ended up, I moved home, but then I ended up moving back to Amherst to work for her. Um, and that kind of was crazy time. <laughs> yeah. And that always works out. Yeah. Having the secret <laughs> affair. I mean, it lasted a long, it was, it was a sure. crazy time. But then after a few years, I thought, I really want to be a writer and I want to move to New York. And so I moved to New York, still working on my grandfather's story. And I worked as a professional organizer for a few years. What is that exactly? Um, you go into somebody's house and you take all their mess and you make it look nice. Oh, my sister yeah. just hired one of you. Nice. Yeah. So that I thought yeah. that's what it was, but I wanted yeah. to ask because what I think is oftentimes not yeah. right. <laughs> it was new. Yeah. I mean, I worked with a lot of famous people. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, rock singers, um, supermodels, crazy people in Manhattan. I saw so much. And is it, and let me ask, because is it, I, my sister has a problem making decisions mm. and my grandmother was a pack rat and like the older I've gotten, okay. I'm like, Oh, there are people where anxiety keeps them from yeah. being able. Is that a large part of the folks that you work with people that just have an anxiety of some of them, yeah. some of them, I, I have a hard time working with those people. Cause I used to call myself an, uh, organizational therapist because we'd sit down and I go, okay, how many Ziploc bags do you need? Or yeah. how many, you know, bags from, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Tupperware. I mean, everything, but I would, you know, you also want to kind of help them. Like we don't need 27 pots. Yeah. Okay. Maybe six pots. Let's yeah. get down or what do you really need? And and you try to kind of encourage them how their life can be better with fewer things. Yeah. Um, but and, that's not yeah. the primary. Cause I, you know, I know I've been around, like, it's hard. You it's make decisions hard. and then the next day it's like, oh, we're going to make these decisions again. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and you have to kind of look at what your priority is. Do you want to come home and do you want to actually sit on your living room couch or do you want to see it with piles of stuff on right. it? Right. Or when's the last time you used your dining room table? So you so, did more professional yeah. stuff. Like yeah. helping people that were didn't yeah. have time to take care of all of their stuff. But Bo both. Absolutely. Okay. I mean, definitely both. Yeah. How do you get into that? I was always good at organizing. I mean, yeah, I used to organize see. dorm rooms, right? In college for, you know, exchange for slices of pizza. And I remember not sure what I wanted to do. And I saw a woman, I think it was on the Today Show, organizing somebody's closet in Manhattan. I thought, I can do that in my like, sleep, right? <laughs> so I went, I said, I'll move to New York. My grandfather was in Brooklyn half the year. I can, my uncle said I could live with him in the Bronx. And I said, and I'll work as an organizer and I can work with my grandfather on a story. And, and that's what I did when I first got to New York. So you were working with, you were doing the book, you were doing this organizing and living with your uncle. Yep. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, really, truly, like that's one of those, like that shit doesn't happen today. Right. Because right. everything is so expensive. Like, oh, OK. Yeah. You had like a little network. And how did the writing career go as you were doing that? Like, were you pitching stuff to magazines and newspapers yes. and all that? Pitching always. Um, I get a few bites here and there. Yeah. Um, and then uh, I got a job. You know, I had one job. Somebody hired me for something and then they needed me at the U.S. Open to kind of run their booth. And I meet this guy randomly in a rainstorm. He says, oh, my friend's starting a magazine on basketball and women. And I was like, writing. I was like, done. <laughs> so yeah. I started working with her. And she worked at the Daily News as um, in the op-ed uh, editorial oh. page. So yeah. I got there was an opening. I got a job there. No shit. As an assistant. And I had a uh, few op-eds published that year. You're an asshole. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, then a year later, I quit to go start this magazine. Yeah. And then the dot-com bust hit. Yeah. So that was around and, 2002? Yeah. Yeah. It was 
yeah, it was just before nine 11. And then, yeah. um, I left, and then I left the daily news and left the magazine. And then I was back to organizing. Yeah. And then I get a call from the uh, president at Hunter college who was married to my boss at the news. And she said, after what you did at the paper, I want you to come run my office. So at 31, I was chief of staff to the president of a huge college. Wow. And did that, that give you time to write? That feels like a busy job. It was a crazy job. Yeah. And I, I, I actually got a column like five months after starting there, a weekly column. So it's like, you know, what do you give? Who do you give the busy? Who do you give a project to the busiest person? Right. I mean, yeah. I was going like 5 a.m. spin, yeah. yoga, work, then write. Yeah. It was but I love Which it. sounds like you're Shangri-La. Yeah, I was going to yeah. say, like, yeah. you're like, finally. <laughs> right. The weekends, we do like 40 <laughs> miles, 50 miles on a bike ride. And I would be yeah. thinking of what I was going to write about the whole yeah. time. In just an hour, I'm like, oh, yeah, no, no I, yeah, yeah, I got you. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know yeah. uh, each of the chapters, but I feel like I know the plot of the novel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just kind of in my head. But that's and, amazing um, that you just kind of went there. It's, you know, when I graduated college, like that was I. It was sort of the village voice was still at the height of its thing. And I'd been mm -hmm. writing for weeklies. And I was like, the one regret that I had is I never just went there and did it because I didn't know anybody. Right. And right. as a poor kid, it was like, ah, how does New York City work? <laughs> Who, you know, it's crazy. Well, just having a, having some family and having a place where you could right. land probably right. gave some comfort to like, OK, I can explore. Yeah. Well, that first year I was ready to quit every other day. I of was, course I was you like were. miserable. You know, yeah. I have no friends and yeah. I'm living in my uncle's bedroom on a twin bed in the corner. Um, and you realize like I lived in San Francisco and we, you know, New York's the same way. It's like nomadic. You got friends for three to five years and then they go away. Like <laughs> yep. if they live in the East Bay and you're over here, like, ah, you're really going to see each other. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We don't leave our borough. Um. And it yeah. sounds like for you, it was very similar to the San Francisco folks that I knew, which is I'm here to figure out my life, mm -hmm. not to like make 30 best friends that I'm going to carry with the rest of my life. Right. Yeah. Because yeah. it's just so fast. Right. And there's so much to do so there. So fast. It's, yeah. It's amazing. I mean, I'm still in contact with a few people I worked with. It was like we went through, you know war together working yeah. there was not but it's work right it's not yeah. personal stuff like right we still have a zoom with all the wired folks from like 98 to 2003 it's like how did we cover the dot-com boom as 20 somethings writing for millions of people like it's amazing but it's but it's right. that same thing right Just you're like no normal human beings won't understand these stories mm -hmm. we're about to tell right <laughs> and you sort of seem like an asshole when you tell them at parties so you're like we'll just tell them to each other <laughs> that's so true so uh so you leave that job we just got a couple minutes left like you do the chief of staff for a few years and then what like what's the jump from there well i i wanted my grandfather got cancer and he said i want you to finish this book and uh so i wow. said i've got to quit this job and give myself one year to finish it and let me find uh, let me find a place that is affordable that I can just quit my job and, and still work as organ. I was still organizing on the yeah. side. And Even when you were I, chief of staff? Yes. Jesus it Christ. It was, yeah, a couple <laughs> here or there. Not a lot, but, um, you know, it was. And so that's when I found this tiny apartment through a friend. Oh, and that was the tiny was, apartment time. Yeah. And so I said, I'll give myself one year to finish the book. I ended up staying in that tiny apartment five years because I loved it, uh, the 90 square feet. And I was able to finish the book because I didn't have this literally and figuratively a huge overhead 
right? And it was a tiny, tiny space. Yes. But you love that line, don't you? I, yeah, but it, it, <laughs> because it's funny. Yeah. But because also it, it also made me realize what do I need yeah. out of life? You know, I mean, you don't need that much stuff. I put seventy-seven boxes into storage. Ended up getting rid of all all yeah. that stuff. And it uh, drives my girlfriend crazy because I'm like, I could live in a tiny house. Like, give me a plot of land by a mountain in a tiny house. Like, uh, I, like that sounds like heaven to me. Yeah. You know? I'll get a Kindle. I love books, but I'll just get a Kindle. It's fine. Right. I read on my phone. Yeah, it it is great. And um, and it all like I say, living tiny made my life so much larger because I was now speaking across the country about yeah. my grandfather's book about living tiny. It was fun. Yeah. It's interesting because in my new book, I have five sections, and each section is actually after coming of age. There's like coming into adulthood. There's a, <laughs> it's a thing, right? Yeah. And so the fifth stage is when you're, you know, at the mid twenties where you think anything's possible. Yeah. You know, you're hopeful still. Yeah. Um, before like, still. the other, yeah, <laughs> before reality <laughs> yeah, kind of not to in. ruin the end. Right. But- Right. But it is nice because then you, you know, and look what people achieve in their twenties. I mean, we've yeah. got Facebook and all these incredible things and, yeah. you know, you've got to have that positive belief system. Yeah. Although I will say I, when I turned like in my mid forties was when my shit started to come together. Right. Like I got into therapy, like, all, like all the stuff. I feel like an athlete who's like 29. It's like, Oh, my physical and mental skills are finally coming together. Yeah. And like, I got like three years of really good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and like the late in the forties sort of mm. felt like that to me. It was like, Oh, this is the time when you become a whole person, mm-hmm. you know, and like give equal amounts to your mind and your body and your spirit. Yeah. I don't know if that happened with you or not. You yeah. seem to be pretty well adjusted. Yeah. I think I've always been, you know, adjusted and, and go with it and, you know, enjoy the journey the yeah. whole way. But I know like the end of my thirties, I started getting serious. Um, I, you know, I bought an apartment and I started yeah. feeling like an adult, but I was still nagged by, you know, this affair that I had had. And, um, you oh, know, that's was, why you started, it was around 40, you started writing it. No, I started writing this like soon after, um, in my, when I was early thirties, I started oh, writing. So this. you, your book projects take a while. Take a long, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, I started writing this and then I won a contest for some writing. And then I kind of put it on the back burner and yeah. worked on my grandfather's story and life and jobs. And, and I kind of came back to this, like, I really need to finish this. Yeah. It's and, interesting. Um, and we'll end with it. So, uh, well, half in is it's out in September, right? September 20th. Yeah. It yeah. Comes out. So that's exciting. Very um, exciting. But I like we've I've had this discussion and I always bring it up when I have memoirists like people think when they read it, a memoir, that they actually are getting the full story of your life. And I always tell folks and I'm maybe tell me if I'm wrong. It's like, no, no, no. You get narrative strands that I've pulled out to tell a story that I want to tell you. This is not to complete anything. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is it's really about this year of this affair and it has a little in the prologue, it's a little foreshadowing of what happens. And then yeah. it ends with um, kind of the last couple of years because this this woman passes away and it's it kind of deals with that. Um, but when I was in my early 20s and going through it, the, the lessons I learned then, especially in relationships, stuck around. Sure. They weren't good lessons. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it depends, I mean, they were right? Lessons. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah, uh, they Not may have been traumatic, but the lessons right. help you forward. Right. 
right? I have, I have no regrets from any of it. And people have asked me because people have read it. They're like, I really didn't like, you know, this older woman. And I thought I'm not, I'm not angry at her. I never saw her as the villain or anything. It just, it's what my life was. And she taught me so many great things. So I'm not going to ever focus on the negative because why? But that's what I mean. Like it's, it is, you're pulling strands that you want to tell. It's not the complete story. And I think people read memoirs and nonfiction and they sometimes think you've just seen a whole painting. And I'm like, no, no, no. You've seen a brushstroke or two. Right. Because life is complicated and life is like rich and, you know, with all of that stuff. (laughs) Right. Yeah. You don't want to put all that in. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why it took a while. Yeah. Did you find it? It's also not therapeutic, right? Like, I don't find writing therapeutic. When you were writing it, did you feel like, oh, I'm, I can put this behind me now? I started writing it as therapy, actually. I never thought it was going to be a book. All my books start out, oh, it's not going to be a book. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and it was just kind of she had passed away and it was to deal with it. So I kind of went back and I started to write and then I, I entered it into this contest. And the guy's like, how much of the book do you have done? And I thought, what book? Yeah. Um, and then I thought, oh, maybe this could be a book. Yeah. But it was... Every time I would, every edit, and maybe there were like 600 edits, every yeah. time I would read through it, it was a private visit with her. Right. And I wasn't ready to share it. I say right. that it was the healing process that took longer than the writing process. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, the therapy exactly. happens outside of the actual right. story, right? right? Because, and I've had, Allison Wood has said it to me. She wrote Being Lolita. Yes, which is about the, I, right? I had a she, class with her. Yeah. She, oh, she's one of my favorite yeah. people, right? Oh, yeah. You sent me the yeah. email. When you, yeah, yeah. yeah. She's and awesome. she said, like, writing is writing and therapy is therapy. And like, they're not the same. And I was like, well, you've just put into words what I've always felt. <laughs> right. No, absolutely. And that's why I had to publish this book. Yeah. Because I could keep writing it in the journal. And it wasn't about that. It was the secret I was also keeping. Yeah. And I, I was, it was filling me with shame. And I had to, I had to put it out there. I had to let it go. Well, and she said, like, it, and again, I think it was a, a sort of a brilliant explanation of creative nonfiction, which is it allows me to control the narrative of a story that I couldn't control when it happened. Perfect. I get to tell the strands of the story that I want to tell. She was like, that was what my yeah. story was about. And like, you, is it that kind of thing with yeah. you? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I don't think. Uh, yes. I mean, I, her story was unbelievable. Um, but I mean, for yeah. your story. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I wanted to tell my story. And I think if Sarah, the older woman were here and read this, she would have no problem with it. Yeah. And even if she would, like, it's the story you want to tell. Right. Right. And like, and that was Allison's point is like, I'm going to tell my story instead of having it be externally explained to me, which is what happened when it happened. Right. Like, yeah. um, And I just, I always, I always end my creative or my nonfiction and memoir stuff with that discussion because I think people don't always realize that when they read something, they mm. think they're getting the full woman in full. And I'm like, nope, nope, nope. Yeah. You're getting a fictionalized version of her at that time, telling you a story about her life that she wants you to know. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. Cause my mom has a, has a hard time with it because she says, I'm so protective of you. And I said, well, that, that person doesn't exist anymore. That was right. a 23 year old person. Who's not here anymore. Yeah. You know, I'm, that's not me anymore. Yeah. You're yeah, telling her of, story. You're telling right. a version of her story now. Right. That's what you're doing. Right. Well, listen, you are delightful. This has been a, a fantastic way to start my morning because nice. you have so much energy. <laughs> and I am like, 
extremely jazzed after having uh, talked to you. Um, Half in, out in September. It's available, I'm assuming, everywhere. Everywhere, yep. That's exciting. Do you have any, well, and would you have anything planned? Like, what's the launch look like? I have a big launch party on oh, the good 22nd. For you. Good. Yeah, and it'll be in my hometown. So there's so many people. Um, it's exciting. and uh, That's the way to do it. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you spending an hour with me on this ridiculous program. Uh, I hope that we can chat again soon. And uh, I just wish you all the luck with this launch. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure. Appreciate it. Delightful. Absolutely delightful. That was Felice Cohen. Her book, Half In, is out right now. Such a wide-ranging interview and... There was like another hour that I couldn't even put in. I am trying really hard to keep these under an hour because I know everybody's time is precious. There was so much. We just, we would start on a topic and I would listen to it again and be like, oh my God, we just talk, you know, talk for 30 minutes about sports. We, there's a whole golf thing that's not in there. Uh, yeah, we, we talked about the live, you know, more than was in the show. Uh, her grandfather, everything. It was just amazing. I hope that you enjoyed that as much as I enjoyed doing it. Um, because if so, I know you had a good time. Before we get out of here, just a couple reminders. You know, we always ask you to do a couple things for us. If you like what you heard, leave us a review either at Apple Podcasts or over at our Facebook page, The Writer's Jam, and tell a friend or two about us. We're always trying to connect readers with authors. You can help us do that. Don't forget, we're part of the Solid Listen Podcast Network. There's 12 other programs on the main channel, including the flagship Mother Mad Sleep with Podcast with host and our Solid Listen Podcast queen, Molly McLear. If you join the Patreon, you'll get commercial-free episodes and a bunch of bonus content that you can only get behind the wall. Don't forget, we're here every Wednesday. Uh, the jam, after party, and jam sessions are all on this channel. So we have the main hour-long program, which you just heard, our storytelling Q&A, and then our deep-dive, smarty-pants, nonfiction show. Best way to make sure you don't miss anything, get subscribed wherever you listen to podcasts. And remember, you can always catch us on Twitter and Instagram at The Writer's Jam. Until the next time, I will see you around the internet. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.